0: 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik. I think you know it much better, but I think uh, uh, when we make an introduction, these kind of numbers will come up. and uh, It's very interesting to give some example because every company talks, oh, we're selling globally, but what does globally really mean? I mean, it's not difficult to sell to the United States, right? But we sell to countries like Bhutan. We sell to, you know, (laughs) you name it, yeah, to the Central African Republic. We sell to Fiji, we sell to Trinidad, Tobago. That's global for me, you know. Any country. Uh, Because everybody uses water. You know, water is the source of life, as I always say, yeah. I'm Michael Sommer, uh, one of the two CEOs uh, or general managers at Sommer Messtechnik. We are an Austrian company, uh, basically a technology company with the focus on uh, water measurement. Together with the measurement, we also provide uh, services uh, like like a internet cloud, where we where all the data come together, and the customer can easily access the data, as well as the data collection and um, data transmission systems. Our company was founded uh, thirty years, almost forty years, thirty-five years, I would say, ago. Uh, here in Austria by my father, Mr. Wolfram Sommer. And he just retired uh, when the Corona pandemic started. So almost two years ago, he retired and now me and my brother uh, running the business uh, together. My focus is more on the sales especially international sales with focus on uh, Asia, Asia Pacific, as well as Middle Eastern area. But I also had a head of the international sales department, what uh, includes in our case, the European market, except of the German speaking countries and uh, Americas uh, and Latin America and Africa, obviously. For this, we have a special, specialists all around the world. We have an office in Malaysia, we have an office in Italy that also runs Africa and and Latin America, and we have uh, also office in German to support our second sales branch, the German speaking area, the DACH area, so to say. I myself started in a different company because I personally uh, find it very useful. To have different background not only working in the family business and working with the, the people that I know already my whole life and know how they, they think and, and do things already from my childhood for me it was very important to go out and and experience different things and so I, I started to work in a machine building company what is totally different business right we, we produce uh, huge machines and, and factories for furniture, aluminium, electronic and steel industry for that matter. I was doing a lot of automatization, so I wrote software for machines, so that the machines are actually doing what the, the operator is input to the machine. So I wrote the control systems and these kind of uh, things. And I traveled the whole world, I, I don't know, I went to 80 countries uh, uh, in that time. I I spent months and months on one project in a, in a certain country, and then I moved on to the next and, and so on. I did this for about uh, 10 years globally, and then I, I finally uh, thought I, I have to settle down and I moved to China. So from 2011, I I lived in Shanghai in China, working for the same company. And um, we agreed that I stay there for two years, build up the business over there, build up the the service and support center over there, and then come back and I would leave the, the, the company and change to our family business. So as life went on, it took me five years to cut the you know the connection to the Um, to my old job and I'm still thinking a lot about it because it was a great time it was a great experience working with uh, machines, different people uh, in different markets all around the world in 2016 I came back to Austria I uh, started to work in our family business and actually I changed from you know from the technology side to the sales side because I, I I said to myself I need to learn all the aspects of of the company, of our family business, and one of the aspects I I did not understand was actually sales because I was more on the technical side. I understood the production and still do, and and I understand R and D and all these kind of things behind the product, but I I never understood sales that much. So I went into some classes and I educated myself a little bit. And then I worked in the sales department as, as one of the sales engineers. And um, I got a lot of guidance and still get a lot of guidance from the much more experienced uh, salespeople. And I, I still think they are much better in sales than me, because as a technician, you always, uh, this actually, this is what people say. As a technician, you are a bad salesman because you're too honest, right? You, you're going to see, first of all, the technical challenges in every project and the salesman sees the financial opportunities. So um, it's, a, it's a learning curve. I, I really enjoy engaging with the people and, and help them to find the, the right product for their needs.
1: If I understood you well, you believe in lifelong learning. What are Sorry. the important skills for a sales manager on a global level?
0: For your first statement, definitely. I think everybody who does not believe in a a lifetime of learning is crazy, I would say. I mean, you experience yourself every day in life that that there are things that you cannot know and you don't know. And so um, this is a a static learning process, all life as well as business. You will never stop learning. Um, and it, life would be very boring if there would be nothing new. Can you imagine the whole life ahead? There would be nothing new to learn. There would be nothing new to experience for that matter as well. So, yes, it's, it's a continuous learning and you need to be open. Yeah? You need to be open for, for new things as well. The most important um, attribute or what do you want to call it skill for an international salesman. I think it's very difficult because I'm not. I don't see myself as a salesman. man. I try to recommend our customer, the best solution for them and um, try to be very honest uh, with them, especially around the technology and um, uh, about us, you know? So for me, if, because I also, you know, buy products from other companies to integrate into our systems, so if I see an, an international sales, I think it's um, yeah, it's difficult. It's you need to be open. You need to to react on the people. You need to read people somehow. What is very difficult in an email, right? So I like the human interaction. I like to see the faces. When you do a presentation, um, and and you see everybody is just watching their phones, you probably have to switch topics or you have to. You know, uh, go off your standard uh, fifteen-minute PowerPoint. You have to—I don't know—engage them in a conversation and stuff. So I think you need to be flexible. You need to be very open. And um, yeah, I think if you if you if you basically if if these are your core attributes, you will um, you can encounter any challenge and that's that's important for not only sales i think for every job right
1: so beside uh, consultative sales approach what kind of uh, personality traits do you think a person need for that kind of uh, interaction for that kind of job
0: i think what makes um, global sales very much different than regional sales is that you need to respect the people that you work with a lot more, I mean, not respect in being polite to them, but respect that certain parts of the world have a different ideology and different, uh, point of viewing. Yeah. Uh, somebody who grew up all his life in, in Vietnam will look at things very different than a guy who grew up in, in Brazil, for example, just, just two examples doesn't matter. Right. And, and so, That also means that he will approach problems and and projects in a very different way. And we can now be angry with our distributors, customers, if something is not as well organized as it would be in Germany, or we can accept the fact and help them to overcome these challenges already in advance or during the the project phase. so I think that's that's a big difference between international and regional sales because if you only work in in one country for example me before I was working mostly in China I was working Asia Pacific but 90% in China even though they're very different as we in central Europe you can adapt to that mentality or to that regional mentality of the country uh, and that's much easier than doing it on you know on the global
1: scale yeah. Can you even uh, synchronize with all those different cultures?
0: Well, it's difficult. I mean, uh, as I said, there are also, there's not only cultures and, and uh, behaviors, it's also ideologies. Um, for me, oh. this was never a problem because I'm generally interested in people. So for me, there is nothing more fascinating than somebody who can tell me a story. And, and actually not only a story, because everybody can tell a story. I am fascinated by people who are fascinated in something. So if I hear somebody talking about, you know, his hobbies and he's really into it and he's really fascinated about it, he can give you so much more insight about it. And I think that's really that's really nice and uh, I love to listen to it. And so for me, it's, it's very interesting going into countries that would be or that are very different to where I come from. So I really enjoy that. I actually, um, I, I really love to do that. So the, the travel part of the job is for me it's just a bonus on top of of uh, having, um, you know, this opportunity to work in our family business. And I what I can say for me most important is you cannot go to a country, or you should not go. You can, you can do whatever you like, but you should not go to a country and tell the people how. What, or what they do wrong in their country and in their culture. You know, that's never a good idea, right? I mean, everybody understands uh, when I come to your place and tell you what to do and what not to do, nobody will be happy. So I think the most important thing is when you arrive in a country is is obviously to be polite, but but also to ask questions about a topic. So if you don't know, can you talk about a topic? Just ask them. Politely and and try to scratch the surface because mm-hmm. most topics we know we know from the internet and we know from television mm-hmm. and so we not have the all the background information that probably the locals have. Also, in many cases the locals have a different view on things that that we have from from the west or the other people have from the east and so on and so on. So I think I I never experienced anybody getting angry if you ask them. A question about any topic, for that matter, as long as you let them state their view and you're not really, you know, tell them this is wrong. You can state your opinion to things, but you should not start a a, a basic discussion with somebody no who argument, grew up yeah. in in that uh, or an argument in 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 that part of the world or in that part of this uh, story, for that matter.
1: How hard for you is to deal with politics on a daily basis?
0: Um, It's actually really funny for us uh, because we would do 95% or maybe 90% 90 of our business with governments, whereby we normally internationally work with uh, resellers, distributors or partner companies. They take the communication with the government. They make the cultural translation. So the companies we work and and you should work with. They also do. They not only translate your words, right? Because if you if you go to a meeting in Japan and you tell them, uh, no, we not want to do that. We want it in another way. You already lost. So saying no in Japan is is a no go. Well, this is what your local partner is for. The local partner will not tell them no. He will tell them. hmm, Mm -hmm. something, I don't know. Uh, Everything is very good, what you said. And and we think we have the second best idea and something like this, I don't know. So um, we're not dealing directly with the governments uh, in many countries. We still have some countries where we do direct business uh, with governments, government agencies. And what is really funny is that the projects are created by the government and in many countries, when the election starts, everything comes to a halt. What is something we we have never experienced here in Austria, because in Austria, well, investments or or projects are not really uh, connected to the current uh, government because each department is is uh, has its budget and plan ahead, and 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 so if there's an election, it does not interfere with current projects, at least not on this small scale. How we do it well if you go to countries like latin america as soon as the election time starts everything comes to a halt the whole government body stops in a way and then if, if obviously if the government changed nobody knows what happened to the budgets and what happened to the the projects and they simply sometimes they disappear sometimes they get bigger sometimes they get smaller nobody knows and i think that's that's kind of a, a something you need to learn because in if you work in industry, uh, most companies will will set up a project to build a new factory, and obviously along the way it can change as well. But it will not will not be that frequently that it change every day or, or every time there's an election or every political let's call it a political fart will influence uh, the project. So that's that's for sure for sure something very special uh, working with governments. Um, and also the political landscape uh, in the world. And maybe another thing that, that most people don't consider working with governments is that many, many projects have a very long uh, period. So we start working with the government, advertising, let's say, our products, show them what new technologies can do and their advantages. But till the decision is made, until the tenders are written and approved, and, and then It can take years. It can take two, three years. And in most countries, the elections are in between. So there is another stall uh, that influenced this whole period. Of course, some countries are faster than other ones. But I just talk in in a general or in an extreme, let's call it in an extreme term that happens in most of the developing countries, is that such projects take a very, very long time.
1: Is there any business language that is transnational?
0: I would say, you know, Europe is quite a good model for international cooperation. Um, I mean, I don't know how people from the outside look at Europe. They, most of them, are, or many of the industrial countries are very big, like United States, Australia, China. These, these are huge countries. Uh, like area wise, and, and also, mm, except of the United States and Australia, cultural wise, they're also a little bit different. But Europe is is a melting pot out of different languages, cultures, history. Um, but all out of this history, and, and you know, sometimes terrible history with the wars and, and conflicts we had over the last 2000 years. Um, We have managed to build a community that that works very closely together. So um, I think there is in the academic level, there is a very good exchange uh, in European countries. And and that also actually uh, expands very well into the United States and to Australia and any other uh, first world country and the developing countries, they kind of uh, Trying to find, the, or they, they try to gain knowledge from first world countries because they invest uh, obviously a lot of money into research and stuff, and and so there is an exchange um, in the in the academic world definitely. So there are countries that work together very closely on a government level. Actually, a good example is Canada and the United States. <laughs> Um, so a lot of uh, things the United States approve uh, will be approved in in Canada as well when it comes to environmental monitoring. And I think that's great. You know, why Canada should, you know, invest the same amount of energy and money if the United States that have the same climate zones or similar climate zones uh, and, and applications as Canada, why they should do the whole thing again? Yeah. So if they can cooperate and sometimes Canada take the leads and sometimes America take it, uh, I think that's great. And, and that's that's how it should be. Many countries look at America and say, okay, if they use it in America, it must be good because they invest the time and money to set certain standards. And, and there are the development funds and development projects where Certain countries send experts to countries, to developing countries, to help them to establish um, their system, especially when it comes to water and, and weather management. And I think that's also very useful. In many ways, it's uh, maybe an overkill for for very developing countries, you know, who are kind of, you know, at the first stage of automatic monitoring, because the technologies that that are out there are are actually so high that it can be a real challenge to understand all the different things and to get it together and have the people who can maintain it and uh, and service it in the in the long run. But in general it's it's quite good work that is done from um you know UMPD, what is United Nations or the the different country funds like the German uh, GIZ, Gemeinschaft für Internationale Zusammenarbeit what is an industrial development fund or the Asia development bank. Uh, They're doing quite a good work around the the world and help countries to build up their infrastructure and resilience against natural disasters and natural influences.
1: Austria is relatively small on a global scale. Mm. Relatively. Definitely. So what kind of challenges are, are you dealing with regarding uh, coping with uh, bigger countries such as States or India or China or wherever?
0: Being in Austria, I would say is a clear advantage for our company. I mean, we, we are a very small nation. Uh, we have eight million inhabitants and we have I don't know the exact size of Austria like the, the area size but it's it's small it it used to be a huge empire in Europe um, uh, more than a hundred years now ago but um, coming back to to being an advantage so I think what what is fantastic in Austria is um I mean for for us as a company is the pool of talents that we can, you know, choose the people from. What is also our biggest problem is that we cannot get enough people that, uh, as we would wish, like you know. So um, before Corona, the unemployment rate in Austria was one of the lowest in the European Union, and that basically meant that everybody has a job, especially in in this field where we working in technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, software engineers, hardware designers for electronics, uh, technical salespeople—you know—all these kind of things. But even in the in the um, creative part, uh, uh, marketing, um, these kind of things, it's very hard to get stuff. You know, people, um, and and you know, people are the core of every company. And so it's it's very challenging to find not only the right skill sets, because that's one yeah? that's one thing you need to find the people who can obviously do the job, um, but I think it's also very important that you find people who who share the mentality of your team. Yeah, it does not make sense if if um, if somebody comes to the uh, you know to the introductory. Oh, what do you call this you know when they come and, and and you talk to them and they say, well, my highest priority is salary. Well, I mean that's okay. Everybody needs to to live and everybody needs to earn money. that's fine. but but you know in our team the focus is much more on on you know developing together a product that that does something good in the world. and and so maybe some some person like this does not fit that well. So uh, it's very hard to get um, technical people or to get uh, engineers um, to, you know, to fill all the positions that we have. And that's not only a problem in our case. Actually, Austria is a, is a, um, a producer of a lot of high technologies. There's a lot of pharma industry, there's a lot of machine building here. We actually have a very big automotive sector, even though we do not produce any cars anymore. Like we produce cars, but not under an Austrian brand. There's some Aston Martins, Mercedes, BMWs. Uh, I don't know what else is, is, uh, or uh, they are made in Austria. Uh, Also drive uh, trains and uh, engines and these kind of things. So um, there's a very diverse industry, but a lot of them is, is based on technology. Uh, either biotech or, or um, like electronic software industry, this kind of things. Yeah. And we also have a couple of, of uh, very famous companies that operate out of Austria that are market leaders. Uh, some of them are huge and famous, as I said, but some of them are uh, very small companies. They're leading the world in a certain niche market and um, actually, our uh, Chamber of Commerce has, a, has an expression for this. We call it the hidden champions. Because there are so many Austrian companies are, uh, uh, that, that have a product nobody else ever dreamed of build, And they do it in a certain fashion that no other company can uh, um, even produce a copy of it that, that only works half as good. So I think that's that's the advantage of living in Austria. Or having the company in Austria, obviously taxes, you know, for companies are quite high and things, but I'm not going to complain because um, I think in return the citizens of the country do get a lot of services. You know, uh, I mean, from from healthcare to free education um to many other things the infrastructure i mean our highways are pretty nice to drive i have to say you know all these kind of small things that that everybody think is normal but you only see if you leave your your country and see how other places do things um you really appreciate uh, what you have at home and why you pay maybe higher tax as in other countries so i'm i'm not um I'm not against paying tax. I think if the tax are used right then it's it's fine. Coming back to China and India they start to produce their own technology in in I think in many different fields and I think their only, their only um, incentive to buy their products is the price, and of course, price is important because it's the first thing most people look at, and especially when it comes to government tenders, that the decision is made about the price and not about, uh, you know, the quality and the extras. So I think this is very—that's—that's uh, not a good solution. Um, And we see this with a lot of infrastructure projects that have been started in Europe and either didn't finish or have such a bad quality built by companies who are not based in Europe. I don't want to call any names, but so I think that's not really the way to go on the in, in our industry. Actually, China is one of our key markets, because the Chinese government and with the developing of the middle class in China uh, has rethinked a lot of their environmental policies. So when I was living in China, there was already a huge transition from being the biggest polluter to the biggest investor in renewable energies. Um, And you can feel it. I mean, when you've been to Shanghai in 2005, there was a lot of smog and there was a lot of clouds. And basically, you never saw the sun. Now, actually, going to Shanghai, the the weather, you can see the sun probably eight, nine months a year, but compared to other places, is not much. But compared to never, it's it's quite a lot. So the improvement is there. The people can see it. The people can feel it. Um, it, it will take many, many more years till everything is cleaned up. But that also, you know, gives an opportunity for technology. So um, um, China does a lot, you know, and I think the, the biggest reason for it is is simply because the middle class has grown so fast and so big that the people demand clean environment. If you look at very poor countries, let's say some African countries, the citizens have totally different concerns than people who live in a... in in, let's call it the middle class because if you have if if your biggest concern is how to get every month a paycheck how to feed your family and how to get shelter for your family day in day out you're not really concerned about the water quality of the river next to you or the air quality that you and your kids breathe but if if all these necessities in life are established so if you, if you have an apartment, you make more money than you spend, or let's say at least the amount that you spend, you also can make, your priorities will shift and you will consider or you will think about yourself and your family in a different way or in a different light. And, and I think this we have seen very clearly in China. This was a very fast transition also because China is, you know, growing in, in such a rapid speed. And uh, having a much bigger middle, she- middle class, um, also the, the government feels the pressure from the, the people to, you know, uh, invest in technologies to switch off coal power plants to, um, well, at least resettle steel plants from urban areas to to areas where the people are not that much affected. Of course, it's a it's a process and. Um, you know, all of our first world countries are very fast in pointing their finger on China or other developing countries and tell them what they do wrong. But we are not really better because in the time where we or our countries developed from, from being an agricultural country through the industrial revolution to, to the first world country, as we call it now, uh, we also polluted everything and everybody. So um, it's just the progress, I guess. The main focus of the SOMA company is to develop sensors and systems to measure water. Water is our most precious resource. And, and you know, there is no life without water. And we have uh, made it our, our target of the company to measure water in different states so we develop sensors and system to measure water inside the snow so our sensors can uh, measure how much water sits in the snowpack and uh, when does the snowpack start to melt and then we make sensors that measure the water coming down the mountain uh, in the rivers and the amount of water in the rivers so Uh, saying that it is very, very important to understand that a lot of our rivers worldwide uh, are sourcing in snow melt. In general, most of the snow cover is on the northern side of the planet. The southern side of the planet has actually also uh, quite a lot of snow, but it's more concentrated, like in Patagonia and and, uh, like that. Um, But the northern uh, hemisphere, a lot of... uh, Big cities and a lot of industrial areas are very heavily influenced by snow and snow melt, and and so looking into the snow is a very important part for the whole water economy, and and so it was always a very big uh, reason for us, especially because we come from a snow-covered mountain, uh, sorry, a snow-covered country with high mountains, and you know um, to also have a look not only the rivers, also to have a look into the snow. To make proper planning and, and and to, you know, predict what is going to happen in summertime. So um, I, I have a good example from from Argentina, for example. Um, there is the city of Mendoza, what is the biggest wine producer in Argentina. We all know Argentinian wine is very famous and it's uh, very nice. And the 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 area of Mendoza does not have rain. I mean, there is no rain, but the, the grapes, they still need water to grow, obviously. So all the water that is used for agriculture in that area comes from snow melt. And now with our instruments, um, the government knows during the winter time how much water is stored in the snowpack and when does the snow melt starts. So they can already do planning during the winter time how to distribute, store, And how to handle all the different uh, uh, waters or actually how to distribute it between the different uh, water stakeholders. What is not only agriculture, we we need to be careful that we not uh, waste our water on on one sector. Also the people need to drink, Uh, there is also the industry who does need water and so on. So measuring water is, is uh, a very important task that is, is widely overlooked by many, many countries. Um, I think it's, it's very fascinating that the place where we come from in Austria, we not really have a problem with water. And a problem means we, uh, we have enough water, so we don't have really droughts for that matter. Well, it probably come in the future with climate change. But currently we have actually enough water and we not have too many floodings. Obviously, there are some and we have just seen uh, floodings in, in Salzburg uh, a couple of weeks ago. But but in general, this gives um, the government or the, the people kind of um, the the mentality. Why should we measure if there is no problem, right? So we have, we, we have seen this with, with the occurrence of, of more and more flooding, that, that measurement and learning about the nature is getting more and more important. So for example, in the, in the floods that, uh, that occurred in Germany just recently, there have been, actually there have been a lot of measurement stations also there and, and uh, equipment, and also the information that heavy rains come in, um, they all have, the information have been out there. But just measuring and and providing the information in the internet to the public is it's just one part of the of the um, of the whole thing. Yeah, you have to be sure, or you have to you know have the right um, structures in place to bring this information to the people who need it. Like if you go back to the disaster, um, as I mentioned. The information have been there, and actually, our German office is is basically in the area that was heavily affected by the flooding. And our technician or our uh, staff they knew there is very very high flood risk because they do this every day. Uh, they are specialists in that matter, but the average citizen who is not a metrologist a hydrologist, or even does not really have technical understanding, or if you, if you think about senior citizens, they have quite a hard time to interpret you know, the, the data that have been provided. Um, and so I think that will be a big challenge for the future in order to bring information to the local people in time, and especially reliable, because also in most of these huge disasters, the internet and telephone lines do not work anymore. So how do we warn the people um, in time and, and uh, reliable? So, and there are actually a lot of technologies from the past that, that still works, like simple sirens. I mean, simple is always relative, but having sirens that, that can run independently and activate it via radio signals or in the future probably via satellite communication, I think that's, that's a pretty good way to go and and that's also a big part of our company so um the customers come to us they have certain issues and we not only recommend them look you install here a sensor and you measure your water flows and then we leave and and leave them alone no actually we want to give them more we want to give them uh, information of what are what are your options so and that, that's probably also different between, if you look at many of these young startup companies that have great technology and that, you know, they learn the newest technologies in, in university or wherever, and then they come and they make a, a huge, nice PowerPoint presentation. And then they say, wow, that's that's the way to go. But what they're missing in many cases, I don't want to put everybody in the same uh, basket, is, is a lot of experience. And as I mentioned before, sometimes, older technologies can be the solution to problems that we actually have since thousands of years i mean flooding is nothing new probably the frequency and the severity of the floods are new at least for our generation because we didn't experience it before and so um having a partner uh, like us um to overcome these challenges i think is very very important and um we also work together with different you know engineering companies with different geologists, hydrologists in order to provide the best services. So if we cannot um, you know recommend you the right solution, then we for sure have somebody in our company network that that can give you the right uh, answers to your questions and and this is what we try. Uh, Um, We really try to to help the people with our technology and our knowledge that we have gained over the last 30 years of doing uh, warning systems and and measurement equipment all around the world. As I have mentioned before, water is our most precious resource and, and obviously source of life. Water is causing a lot of conflicts, not only disasters, also human conflicts between each other. Some countries control the water resources of other countries and use that as pressure on that country, on their neighbors to gain certain targets that they have set themselves. What is not a very good uh, situation, obviously. Um, And and also here, you know, measurement and, and accurate and high quality data uh, will be essential to make the right decisions in the right time. Not only for disaster management, obviously, it is, it's a very pressing matter, but also, you know, knowing more about your most important resource. So if, you, if you're if you interested in, in learning more about the water measurement, uh, the technology behind it all, um, Please contact us uh, either directly or check out our homepage on www.sommer.at, AT for Austria, summer like the most beautiful time of the year, or send us an email to office at summer.at. We're very happy to answer you, all your questions. Um, and yeah, I hope uh, you had a good time.
1: If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review.
0: 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik.